name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Again, if you're home today, a warm welcome to you as well. Somewhat ironically, uh, I'm going to talk to you today about not talking. I'm going to talk about the virtue, the habit of silence. Uh, In some ways, picking up on where we were last week. Last week, we talked about solitude. Uh, This is kind of 2.0 of that same conversation, continuing with this theme of of silence, and specifically silence in our speech. If you've been reading the book on page 114, I love the way he says this. Uh, Bennett says, our speech derives from a community. Our speech derives from a community. So however you and I speak, that is not formed in isolation, but speech Uh, whether it's our vocabulary, whether it's our accent, whether it's our cultural points of reference, all of that is formed in community. It's a communal exercise. Uh, My kids are picking this up. My kids are in that phase where they love to try out new accents. And so my kids will go around the house saying things like, oh, cheerio, I'm from England. Um, Picking it up somewhere from Paddington or, you know, a book or whatever it may be. But even in that mimicking, what they're doing is they're showing a certain longing, a certain affinity for a culture, for a way of being, for a people, and really a society, a way of being in the world. And I think all of us, whether you're here or you're at home, uh, you can relate to that because in one way or another, when we come of age, we all are longing to find our place in the world. Who are the people we belong to? And we therefore learn the, mu- the music we're meant to like. We learn the food we're meant to enjoy, the language we could say, the language of that scene, that sport, that hobby. And it gives us a place to belong. I've seen this recently in a show my wife and I have been watching uh, called We Are the Champions. A few of, of us have talked about this over the months. Uh, it's a really random show that's on Netflix, narrated by uh, Rain Wilson, a.k.a. Dwight Schrute. And it's fascinating because it's a whole show based on obscure sports. So things like uh, cheese rolling or frog jumping or hot pepper eating contests. And yet what stands out in every one of these episodes is the sense of community, the sense of belonging. Every one of these people, even the most obscure of activities, within them they have found a place to call home, a people to whom they can belong. And central to that is language. The words they use, the vocabulary that they adopt, all of that is a way that they find their belonging. Words, in that sense, are a form of welcome. And so if we're going to talk about words today, about how we use them or when we choose not to use them, ultimately, what we're really learning to do is to learn the language of God, learning to learn the language of God so as to find our ultimate home, that ultimate place to which we belong. And sometimes we have to be silent in order to learn how to truly speak. We have to be silent in order to reorient our lives to God to reorient our lives to others as well. And that's the heart of our discipline, our virtue, our practice this week, because we see these forms of malformed speech, whether we're overly talkative or we speak evil of other people, and they keep us from listening to God. They keep us from listening to other people. And so we often will approach God with this endless list of requests or demands or urgent ways in which we need him to act and orient himself to our lives, rarely pausing to do the opposite, which is to say, God, how do I reorient my life to you 
and to your kingdom. And I think similarly, we can talk at someone incessantly, talk at someone, yet rarely hear them and actually see them and be present to them. And I think in all of our readings today, we are reminded of how to be silent in order to behold God and love our neighbor. Briefly, just to go through these. I feel like a talk on silence should be a brief talk. So let's go through these a little bit. Genesis 17, it's one of the first things we see in that first reading today. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face. So God draws near to Abram, and he says, this is the way that I'm asking you to walk in. This is the way to life in my presence and in my kingdom. And yet Abram doesn't instantly launch into all of his questions or his doubts or his concerns, which he surely had. The first thing he does is he is silent before God. He holds his mouth, he holds his tongue, and he falls on his face in worship. In a sense, he learns to listen to God. He doesn't assume he knows the way. He has to be silent so he can listen. There's a place for speech. You see that today in our psalm, Psalm 22. Praise God, glorify him, stand in awe, but first, learn to be silent. I think silence always should precede speech, and yet we are so quick to rush into using our words without thinking, are they actually for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of God? Um, Abram is a great example in this way. I think it's why Paul, in our Romans reading, encourages us to be like our father Abraham because Abraham gets this so beautifully right. And so I think all of those help us understand the gospel reading, a very familiar passage likely to most of us, uh, Mark chapter 8 Here we see Jesus saying a profoundly difficult thing for his disciples to hear. Verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. This is not what any of his disciples signed up for. They signed up to follow a revolutionary who was going to overthrow Rome and restore Israel back to their rightful place. And so when Jesus says this, this is an immediate source of contention, a source of disagreement, you might say. And so Peter rushes in. Peter speaks not from a place of trust, but he speaks believing he knows something that maybe Jesus doesn't. Like Jesus is having a momentary lapse in judgment. And so Peter needs to correct him. And so verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to use his words to redirect Jesus Christ. To say, I think you need to come over here and I don't like where this is headed. I I want to redirect towards a specific outcome towards a specific goal. And I've, I've thought a lot about this scene this week. It's a fascinating scene um, where we see Peter coming up alongside, rather than following behind, coming up alongside, even trying to go in front of Jesus to say, no, 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 you got it wrong. Come over here with me. And as I've thought about it, here's something I want us to sit with today. I think in one way or another, Peter felt a loss of control. In this moment, there's a loss of control. He's losing his own sense of agency. He can do very little to secure, we might say, to secure a certain outcome. And so he feels the need to reassert himself, to insert himself into this situation, to use his words 
to secure a better, in his mind, a better outcome. And I think we often do the same thing. And when we use our words in a malformed, broken way, we use our words from a place of insecurity where we desire to secure a certain outcome and we hate when we feel helpless, when it feels like we're out of control. And so we will rashly use our words to try and grasp for control when we feel it slipping out of our hands. I'll give you one very uh, silly and simple illustration. I wrote this part of this week's talk, this week's sermon, at 30,000 feet. Uh, I was traveling this week to Dallas uh, for my new job and was coming back on Thursday evening. And Dallas had horrible weather, as it often does. Um, And I wasn't paying attention, though, to this. I was just in the terminal. And yet when I walked down to get on the plane, I looked out the window and realized it was a full-blown hailstorm, like just colossal hail falling everywhere. And I thought, this is not going to be good. This is going to be profoundly ungood. Uh, I hate flying to begin with. And so this was kind of just added to that. And I get on the plane. Um, there's, you know, 100 other people on the plane. And so I'm thinking, well, we're, we're either all fools together or, or this is going to be okay. Um, the pilot comes on as we're all, you know, taxiing. And he says, uh, we're dodging several massive storm systems. And the first half of this plane ride is going to be pretty rough. Um, which was not what you want to hear when you hate flying to begin with. On a clear, sunny day, I don't like to fly. And so uh, I'm just kind of bracing myself, and we take off, and sure enough, he was right. We're, you know, jumping up and down, you're shaking away, and I'm like grabbing, you know, holding on for dear life, thinking about you all, and thinking about this moment, thinking about Jesus and Peter as I'm uh, being hurtled in a pressurized rocket at 30,000 feet through the air, um, clinging on, you know, for, for dear life. If you'll allow a, a crude, um, rough illustration comparison, here's, here's why I'm telling you this. Um, in a sense, I think there's a comparison because what I feel as a passenger on a plane that I can't stand is the lack of control. I think I would rather drive my own car through a hailstorm, and I really wouldn't even be upset about it because I have a sense of I'm in control of this thing. I can choose to direct it, and yet when you're flying on an airplane, you're completely passive. There's nothing you can do other than sit there, look out the window, and assume they know more than you do. And I think there's a comparison there because in a sense, what Peter has just been told today in our reading from Jesus, the pilot, we might say, is that he has signed up for a very rough ride. That in order to reach their peaceful destination, in order to land where they are meant to be going, to arrive in glory, we might say, the way there is a difficult journey, fraught with danger, fraught with difficulty, even death itself, and yet that is the only way to go. And what Peter's being asked to do is what is almost impossible for all of us, which is give up control and trust the pilot. And I think in a thousand different ways, that in some ways is the summary of the entire Christian life. Are you and I willing to trust the pilot and actually follow where he leads and resist the urge to use our words and our actions and our behaviors in such a way as to try and redirect and say, no, you've got it wrong. That's not the way. There's another way around. Because that's what Peter does. And in that sense, Peter is all of us. Peter is every single one of us. And yet I think Jesus' response to him in some ways is the whole of the Christian life. You could sum it up in verse 35, and we'll stop here. Jesus says, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. 
And I think we have to learn to be silent in order to hear these words, to trust Jesus and reorient in a form of obedience to this way of life, to reshape the way we live, both with God and with one another in this way. And I think there's an invitation to all of us um, in the coming months even to say, how as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, do I use my words and redirect my words, choosing to be silent when needed so I can trust Jesus as he leads? Uh, The pandemic has isolated all of us. We've grown accustomed to this, and yet it is strange, and we shouldn't be accustomed to the fact that um, the majority of you hearing these words are doing so at home, watching on a screen. And every week, a handful of us gather in in person kind of to remind us that we're human, (laughs) to remind us that we are still on a a journey together, and yet uh, we have largely been isolated. And so even a talk about using our words is a muscle we have largely not used coming up on a year. We've not regularly and intentionally used our words in relationship with one another because we've been isolated from one another. And so maybe this is an invitation to say, coming out of a season, uh, wherever you're hearing or finding these words, if you are a follower of Jesus, you and I must relearn afresh how we use our words and how we choose to silence our words so as to trust Jesus and to follow him and love one another as we do, to use our words for the good of our neighbor and the glory of God. As our book says, um, to let our words edify, reconcile, and heal. That's the invitation to us today. Let it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that this would indeed be true of our lives, that we would live trusting your guidance, trusting your direction of our lives even when it's bumpy and even when it feels disorienting and scary and fearful, that we would believe that you are good and you love us more than we can even love ourselves. And so we rest in your truth. We trust in you as we sang, as Cindy reminded us, we depend on you. And where we are filled with doubt or fear and where those doubts lead us to be rash with our words, to speak fear, to speak um, something other than blessing over our neighbor. We ask for your mercy, ask you to forgive us, and we ask that you would heal us, we pray. Amen.